Hi, this is Vibhav here. I'm one of the co-founders of Deputy Cash. It is no secret that there is no money in building a payments business because thanks to the UPI there is virtually no commission to be made in the processing of payments. Payment startups like Paytm and Bharat Pay are taking the approach using their payments business to acquire customers for building a profitable lending business. Time will tell if their approach is the right one or not. But in the shadows of these large payment companies exists a startup that is building with a reverse philosophy. FT Cash is a fintech startup that first acquires customers for loans and then gives them the payment processing services. In this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks with Vaibhav Lodha, the co-founder of FT Cash, about his journey of building a sustainable fintech startup. Vaibhav comes from the social impact space, and in this conversation, he talks about how his unique background helped him build FT Cash using first principles thinking. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming platform to learn about building and scaling your startup sustainably. So it so happened that I was consistently still visiting, networking, meeting people. And Inc is an organization that was launching an organization in India called Xprize at the time, and they were launching their first prize. So they just held like a pre-launch event for us, and I happened to be there. So Mr. Adam Tata was there, his sister Zenia Tata was there. So I met both of them, and I wrote to Zenia later saying that you're doing amazing work. So Xprize is an organization. Actually, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it has. one of the most fascinating stories of origin that i can imagine it was also a dream job for me so in 1995 peter diamandas who is the founder of xprize launched a prize saying that the entire space industry is completely government owned which is nasa so i want to privatize it so whoever launches the first spacecraft that launches from earth goes to suborbital space 100 kilometers above earth comes back and within i think a span of 2 weeks goes back again with a private space tourist i'll give them 10 million dollars And so who is Peter Diamandis? How did he, he get this ten million dollars? So he didn't have money at the time. In fact, he was working out of his garage at the time. So he found a sponsor during the course of the prize when he launched the prize. So for nine nine years, nobody was able to solve it. In the tenth year, actually, he there's a company that actually solved it. They went to space. They came back. They used the same aircraft to launch it again with the sponsor of the prize. I think the lady's name was Mrs. Anushay. She was also the first female space tourist ever. She's now the CEO of Xprize, by the way. And so when it landed in Mojave Desert at the time, right? Richard Branson actually bought it as Virgin Galactic at the time. So that is the origins of Xprize, Virgin Galactic, etc. So I was very fascinated by this organization. I was like, I have to be a part of it, irrespective. So then I met Zinia. Like it was very. I was assuming that once this one prize was won and achieved, they would have continued to create new targets. Yeah, right. Say the Nobel Prize, basically, it becomes an institution. Yeah, so then this was an institution which was launching multiple prizes. So another prize that they launched was like to create a car that could drive, I think, hundred miles in one gallon. Right? They have one prize for education, one prize in ocean cleanup. So the prize that they they had in mind for for, and this was the first prize that they were launching outside of India. So I was basically after my discussions with Zinia and the other team members, like I got invited to join as a global development for them to launch their prize in India. and that prize happened to be a water related prize because of my experience now in water having worked in multiple places that 
can we create drinking water out of thin air? Because at that time, there was an article in Economist in 2012 or 13 saying that the next world war in 2025 is likely to happen because of water crisis. So like, can we create an atmospheric water generator that can actually just draw atmospheric water and then convert that into drinking water as well? We launched the prize and then like it was just the start of it. Like we did a lot of research background. We created the guidelines, etc. around it as well. Though unfortunately, XPRIZE at the time in India had a relatively short stint because so XPRIZE was a non-profit and for non-profits to launch prizes, they need to have funds and funds require FCRA. What so, is the Foreign Currency Regulatory Act? Within, yeah, something of that order. So it requires three years of financial records to be able to get that itself. And I think because of the misuse of some of these organizations in the past having FCRA, there's, there was also tightening of FCRA certificates in, in the real years. And I think in the recent years also has been very hard. So then they realized that to launch this prize, the prize money cannot be given itself. Because all the donors wanted to give the prize to the Indian entity and that would not happen without FCRA. So then we had to actually curtail that prize. It launched in a very smaller format in the US itself, but then it didn't have the same fee. So at that same time, like I realized that, okay, unfortunately, I think my path in this organization might not go the same way I wanted to. So I was also trying to create a product in a different space, which is with a friend actually in the, you know, in a civic governance space, civic tech governance space. This was an organization. Now I think I find that name funny. We called it Citizen Kane. We were trying to say that, okay, can we create technologies and products to measure large corporations, government, nonprofits to track the large projects better using tech. And I think those projects probably can be, a those ideas can be a lot more feasible today with the advent of, I think, drones and IOTs, etc. and the tech related to it. But at that time, I think it was a little more far-fetched than I think it was. And I was very naive as well. But I think what helped me was that one understanding again, that there's no product market fit, that users need to have a paying ability for every product. And in this case, what I was also trying to do was create a product to bring out corruption across organizations. And the people who want to buy this product were also people who were corrupt. So it would not really happen at the same time. So it was a lot of pilot projects. I we were able to create a, a good team as well, a very elaborate team actually. But at the same time, it didn't, it didn't take off. So that time is when it just happened to meet uh, my co-founders. So Sanjeev, I met him in an Ivy League mixer at the time. And it just happened that uh, he had spent, he's been out in the US for the longest time, since 92, 2007. He was working at WDCA for Deutsche Bank at the time. And uh, we started speaking about financial services. And then this idea came about like, small merchants and like why we don't have payment systems for them here. This is obviously like much before like some of these larger players had picked up as well. Quite got sunk in the idea as well. I realized that you're not going much with Citizen Kane anyway. So then we said that let's take this forward. Sanjeev, Deepak and I, then we got started with FT Cash at the time. We left our respective jobs. And then this is what we got into full time as well. So that's been, that was 2015, mid-2015 is when we got started with this. So, the problem you identified was that a credit card POS machine is present in very few merchants. More merchants need a way to accept digital payments. That yes. was the problem you identified. Yes. So, we, having spent, like all of us have been outside, spent time outside India as well. Digital is a very norm, there's a norm there, then an exception, right? 
In India, that's not really the case. We said, how do we change that? As simple as that. Like, why is it that this is not a norm in India and how can we change that? So our initial service said that the cost or the monthly rentals of POS machine was the detriment to it. And also, I didn't really have any reason to service like a smaller merchants because the transaction volume would be so low that they'd hardly get anything. So we said, like, why don't we take that set of merchants? Not like the big bazaars of the world, but the smaller retailers that we can that actually have a need. And we don't need to create like a hardware POS because hardware has a cost. Can we create like an app-based payment system wherein from the app you're able to make a payment? We can create a link-based payment system. We can create a QR code where you can make a payment, which would eventually direct you to a, a link itself. That time, obviously, UPI was not existing as well. But so we created that entire spectrum. We also said that we keep it an open platform. That, I think, was an important decision for us because we said that any new payment method that comes in, be it like a wallet, be it like later on UPR, we will be accepting of that on a platform itself rather than becoming a closed garden. Because what was happening was all the extremely well-funded companies would tend to were moving towards the wallet direction that we'll have a closed wallet of our own and we'll only want transactions within that. Our thesis at the time was that, see, then this becomes a winner-take-all market. I don't know if it'll ever become a winner-take-all market because usually it's never been across the world. Even in the world, MasterCard and Visa are two players and Amex as a third player. So we didn't believe in that setting that, okay, only one wallet will become the biggest one. But we were facing a lot of heat from merchants because what was happening was all these companies had so much money that even if we gave a POS machine or like a payment system at a much lower cost than even what we are incurring, right? They're like, case pe cash back on dega? Ya, is pe, aap, transaction karunga, to aap merch, customer ko discount do. And it was weird to us. I was like, this is a service. And if, you instead of paying for a service, we are anyway giving it to you at a discount. We are not even charging you fixed fee. But you are asking us to pay on every transaction, which doesn't sound. But I think that was a froth at the time as well. But so, we didn't believe. So we sorry, good. This this is you're talking about Paytm, Mobiquick. These were the wallet companies at that time who yeah. had like a closed garden approach that you need yeah. to have the Paytm app and load the Paytm app to pay via Paytm to a merchant. Similar yeah. for Mobiquick. Right. So what you wanted was something which is more through the existing credit card or debit cards that people are carrying. Just give them a way to swipe or that card. Yeah, included Paytm and Mobiquick and all these other wallets also on our system. Okay. And how did it work? Like how if I have a debit card and I go to let's say a sari shop and I buy a sari yeah. and then so if, you, if the merchant accepted FT cash, right? So they'd have the FT cash registration already done. So we would have taken their bank details, right? So whatever bank details that they would have, right? So if a customer now could either use a link or a QR or the FT Cash app itself, they could search the merchant or they could just look do a QR scan of the merchant as well. Now, when they find the merchant, they can just put in either their credit card details, wallet details, made later on UPI details as well, just to make a payment, right? And the money would get credited into their bank account. So you're not creating a new infrastructure to say that, okay, you have this hindrance that we park this money in a separate FT cash wallet. No. You're saying whatever your bank account is, we'll put the money in there. And merchants, also, we felt that they were far more comfortable with that. So this would still need a lot of things which may not have been in place at that time. Say, reliable internet. The merchant would also need the internet to make sure that the payment has come in. Entering your visa card into the app would have been a little painful. And then two-factor authentication yeah, uh, as yeah. compared to a POS, which you, you it's so yeah, much faster. So like, yeah. 
Yeah, so all the issues you mentioned were absolutely the problems that we were trying to recover with as well. So one thing that we solved the problem for was the merchants actually having a smartphone and internet connection both, which is not prominent at the time. So we said a merchant can have a 2G phone also. All they will get is an SMS from FT Cash confirming that the payment has been done. Because we already have the bank details, etc. So either the customer can use the app, they can use the QR or they can use the payment link, which is fine. So that actually worked fairly well. Because that didn't require a merchant to have anything. Usually the merchants were the ones who had a 2G phone, not the customers. But yes, one party did need to have a, a smartphone, which is the customers in this case. But I think, uh, like you said, the entering of the card details was a hindrance here. But there was no solution to that because NFC did not pick up that time and maybe till, till date as well. And that has been like the hindrance that we were backing on that maybe if NFC picks up at a time, we may, may, we may be able to include that in our payment. Or maybe we like, should be able uh, to uh, What does NFC do? How does it enable it is, to, this friction getting removed? So what would happen is if it picks up, you could have two mobile apps, one both FT Cash apps included and if the NFC is on, you can just punch in the amount and then tap the two phones or tap the QR code and the payment is done. Okay. Okay. Right? Okay. So then you didn't need to go through the entire spiel of like entering card details, etc. as well. Hmm. We were quite excited about it as well. Unfortunately, that was not the case at the time. Your revenue would have been through the MDR, the merchant discount rate, about yeah, one and a half to two percent. Correct. Like so, that was what we were charging any merchant. Tip. So, in this case, what happened was we realized that a lot of offline merchants were signing up, but they were not very consistent. They were only using it for deliveries, etc. As well, like a, a grocery shop delivering it to a in a building would typically make a payment through FT Cash, but it didn't have a very strong in-person resemblance to transactions. So, what we started doing was we started focusing mostly on remote. So, for example, travel agents, car service centers, they became our go-to across India, like we were across all Mercedes showrooms. For example, we were there across so many Bombay showrooms that from a Maruti to a Ferrari showroom, we were there as, as well in, in as a payment method. So, that really started putting us on the map because a lot of big players who had these cars, right, were also using this method and they're like, this is cool. So, this required zero marketing, but then they found that at least there is some convenience there. Right. Our, our transaction numbers may have still been relatively low to what others were doing, but at least they were still at some point profitable. In some cases, more there was a product market fit in that case as well. And then obviously, we were the first players to include UBI in offline setup along with ICA Bank. So this was the launch of UBI. So we actually wrinkled out the entire system of UBI along with ICICI Bank for their launch as well. And we launched together. Uh, so this was, I think, August to September 2016. And a couple of months later, or like in November 8, suddenly we see that demonetization happens, right? And that was a massive hit because we were extremely happy about that as a payments company because really there was a huge uptick of merchants. Typically, yeah. sales would find too hard to find three or four merchants to sign up in a day. We're now able to sign up 20, 30 merchants in a day as well. Seamlessly. And like the demand was used, the transactions are going through amazingly well. So much so that at some point we felt like our systems might break down just because the amount of transaction volume is so high. So that volume increased. We also were able to customize the product to whatever needs that were coming by. All of that was happening. But there was some... One, one or two quick questions here first. Uh, your way of onboarding merchants was through Salesforce. Like you would have... Yes. We had, yes. We had Peter Street. We had an auto sign up as well, which you could do on website. But typically, that would require a lot of marketing on our behalf, which we didn't have that kind of money for. So we'd raised only a small round from IBCAP Ventures at the time. 
we could not put like big billboards or TV advertisements. So typically, Freedom Street was the way to go for us. And you had Freedom Street Pan India or did you have a geographical focus? We initially started from Pawai. We expanded to Bombay. And then over a period of time, we went through the entire country. Like by the time demonetization hit, what was your coverage? Like probably so, uh, we were there in the, most of the metros. But what happened was we also ended up having like indirect coverage through connectors. So these connectors would basically do on a successful based model who would be able to sign up merchants for us across the country. What is a connector? Like, so connectors are like channel partners who would say that, okay, for every successful sign up, you give me like 50 rupees or 60 rupees and I'll get these merchant documents, KYC, whatever is required to sign up this merchant for you so that you can start accepting the payment system. This would right. be say a distributor who's connected to retailers. So, correct. correct. Okay. So they could say that, okay, yeah, I anyway have a thousand merchants working with me. I don't mind running like a 50,000 rupee commission if I sign up all these merchants. So they would do that. That was seamless for us as well because we didn't need physical presence. And typically what happened is that if you get through that one channel, then word of mouth will also spread and like more purchases will sign up in that space as well. You must have incurred some cost, payment gateway costs of your own. What was your net margin? Yeah. Actually, the net margin at that time was very poor. We were actually in MDI negative at the time. So what was happening was because we were relatively small, right? So the cost to us that companies were giving was actually very high. Say, for example, 1.7 or 1.8 for a credit card, right? But what the merchants would expect from us would be that, oh, uh, somebody else itself is giving me 1.7, 1.8. So if you give me 1.5, I'll take it, right? So they will ha haggle for the 10, 15 basis points or 20 points as well. And we felt that Okay, maybe we get started because we anyway not giving these snapbacks and discounts that they wanted. So we can take the hit right now. But as we scale, once we have volumes, we'll be able to get these rates down and also increase it for these merchants when they actually realize the value of these services. So yeah, that was the model that we went. You went with a like a standard flat pricing, take it or leave it, or was there like some negotiation with each merchant? And I think with larger merchants, there was some amount of negotiation. But with smaller merchants, there was no negotiation. We didn't have the time also. Like with larger merchants who committed to a certain amount of volume. Yes, like they were cities. Yeah, like if a big showroom or somebody is saying that, yes, I'm going to give all car services to you and my volume would be like five crores a month. Then yes, of course, we have like that discussion. Okay. And in, what did you think like eventually you would monetize as? Because this means essentially every transaction you are burning money. Like We were burning money at the time for every transaction. But the idea was that like these 1.7, 1.8 rates will also come to 1.3, 1.4, which is what okay. others will get. Like that scale, those, uh, your scale. costs would come down. Okay. Would come down because if you're doing smaller numbers, obviously no one's going to give you the best rates as well because you have to become meaningful enough for a player to respect you. And at the same time, then when the customers are so hooked out to the system that they're deeply integrated with you, when you slowly and gradually increase the prices also, then they'll not mind because then they'll see that I have to pay 20 basis points extra, but it, I know the value of the system and I'm okay to pay for it. So this offering was a pure SME offering, like a simple app where you know how much you received or you can generate a link with a prefix amount was what described the product to me. What's a yeah. And this would be like a free and like there was no cost which a merchant had to bear to onboard. Onboarding so, would be free. So there was no fixed cost for it. You could send out links as well, like you just said, with a pre-filled amount. So that you can just click and then choose the payment of method of your choice. You could also just send an invoice to another merchant's uh, customer's app also, or their phone on WhatsApp or SMS also. So all the optionalities were there. So we, what we've done was 
customers in such a way that whatever is convenient. So we had also given some of the car service centers an entire SaaS system where they could just type in the phone number and the amount and then send it send it as a link also. Right. So that customized link would go. The same would be for travel agents as well. So that link would be so. triggered through you, like you were sending out these SMSs. We were sending yeah. out these SMSs mm-hmm. for payment things. But like the in data would obviously be input by the respective merchant as well. We realized that getting customers to download an app was a much more expensive process, even than that. And I think it's only got it more expensive over the period of time. Because customers don't always want an app which they're not regularly using as well. So we realized links or QR codes was a much better and faster option to do it. So, so the link would open a web page with a checkout where they could yes, feed yes. in there. So customer could save his card or he had to punch in the card each time? They could save in the card. Once you enter your mobile number, you could get the OTP to use the saved cards as well. So we were PCIDS, we are and we were PCIDS certified. So that was not an issue to save card details. Look, what is this PCIDS certified? It basically is to say that, okay, you are certified by Payments Corporation to say that you can store card details and you can run payment transactions and the entire process is secure. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. So now let's come back to demonetization. So demonetization hit, your sales team became super efficient. They were yeah. getting so 10x the regular of the onboarding. Hmm. Yeah. But I think there was something more that was happening under the less that we, were, we saw it only over the period of time that was happening. That these merchants, a lot of merchants were signing voluntarily as well. And they were doing transactions. They were learning the entire process by themselves. But slowly and gradually, they started moving away from like the moment cash came back, their volumes dropped. They, some of them completely dropped away. That was a question for us that if there's a movement as big as this, right, which can't move these merchants completely to digital payments, is there a real product market fit? And that's why I said like this theme of product market fit kept coming back to me again and again. So we had to reassess ourselves and work also again that is this a real merchant need? You During your peak, demonetization would have been the peak, right? So at that peak, what was your DT, GTV, gross transaction value? We were doing roughly about upwards of 60 crores a month, 70 crores a month approximately at the time. I think for a company that was one, one and a half years old at the time, it was fairly good volumes. But obviously that took a hit to post that. So what happened was slowly when these merchants started receding, right? Not that our volumes dropped, but the rate of increase of these merchants dropped the activity levels of these merchants shop. And that was the number that we had to see that, okay, are we solving the right problem? And then we had to go back to first principles to understand from these merchants that what is making you drop out? Why cash or why this? Did you not find this convenient? Or what is really going on? And I think we learned a few things from them that payments is a nice tool for merchants to have, but it's actually pushed by customers. It's not their choice. So, if given a choice, they would actually choose cash. I would say that UPI has changed that a lot because of the ubiquity and like the scale, but that was not the case at the time. Say, but at the same time, they also felt that this the transaction fee that they had to pay, etc., was not something that they they were willing to pay, and they wanted to negotiate, etc., as well. Now, then we started asking them questions that okay, what are your problems, right? Now, this is where we were also went in deep understanding. Okay, is lending, insurance, wealth management. All these questions, right? We asked them whether actually if we to give you loans, will you take it from us? They said no. Loan to payments bank se mil jayega, whatever, right? But something told us that actually loans may be required and 
they just don't know that they, they require loans. Maybe among the set of merchants that we're targeting, maybe that's they don't require loans. So maybe we should widen our scope. Maybe we should launch a product right around it. So I think that was a gut weight decision, partially not so backed by data, but we still had to take a call. So we took a call. We started working on various lending products at that time. Now we had to continue the payments business, but also go into lending, right? Now we did that with partners to begin with. So we launched multiple products of different ticket sizes, different tenors, interest rates, etc. So a product could be as small as 10,000 to 1 lakh to 5 lakh also. And tenor could be like one week to one month to six months to a 12, 12 month period also. So we had to figure out what is meaningful for these merchants, what works, what doesn't work. At the same time, also understand from the industry that in the current set of merchants or businesses that are already operating in this space, what is making them not so efficient that they would come to us? That actually did happen because we worked with a lot of partners at the time. We also understand the deficiencies that they had to be able to fill those. They allowed us to understand that, for example, risk post-disbursal risk management was a big gap, right? Most of the partners in this space, what they were doing was, their story was that we have the best credit algorithm to assess these merchants. We have these thousands of data points and we do the best credit assessment. Now, what happens is, imagine a cycle of a loan, right? Imagine if I had to offer you a loan for 5 lakh rupees. You are worthy of it, right? And I'm able to assess that. Great. But if you have, and that, that assessment is only as good as three months. Going or three months later, right? If you end up having any emergency or like you have an intent issue or you just choose to run away, I can't do anything about it. That is not a part of the credit cycle I can work with. So we realized that post dispersal risk assessment or management is one of the most important parts that a lot of these players were missing. We had to fix that. And that was one very important piece that we started to work on as well. And we were trying to figure out how can we create that differentiation as well. But and why why did that matter to you? So you would earn per loan sourced, right? I'm assuming that companies would pay you an origination fees. If you originate right. a loan, you get paid. We sign up deals with them where we do the credit assessment and collections as well. So we said that we're going to take the risk on these loans. Because otherwise, don't have skin on the game. There's no point. And then they'll only give us like a brokerage-like model, which is not what we want. Like at scale, if we really want to excel at this game, right? You can't be doing like a cha channel partner type model. Yeah, like a DSA. That probably would not be the most effective way for us to scale. So we did these partnerships with the intent that, okay, we will do these things. What will be the legal process that will follow? That will be a learning for us as well. So in the first, we launched a lot of these products, like a different tenors and ticket sizes. At the end of one year, we started to realize what is more meaningful for the merchant, what are the gaps in this segment, and what can we do to uniquely fill this gap as well. How were you collecting? Was it like because you are a payment gateway so you can deduct something every time they receive a payment? Was yes. it like that? Correct. So that's exactly what we did. And in fact, that was what I was come to as well. That we realized that with these merchants, our unique proposition can be that instead of them having a monthly EMI, right, they're not salaried employees. They don't get salary of the month. They're getting payments on a daily basis. Why not collect on a daily basis itself? So our payment systems would be given with every loan. And we tell that you repay these loans based on the payment system or daily basis from a payment system itself. The product that we eventually did launch, and that's something that we've been scaling for the last five years, right? 
is that uh, these are loans in the ticket size of 1 to 25 lakhs because we realize 25 lakhs is an aberration. Typically, most of these loans, I would say 80% of these loans would be in the ticket size of 1 to 10 lakhs with an average size of 5.5 lakhs. That felt is a meaningful amount, but you're not overexposing the merchant to credit also because credit is all, debt trap is also a big thing. Like you can very go into that. At the same time, we kept the interest rates in the market rate itself. People were charging roughly anywhere from 28 to 30%, 32%. We were charging the same. And we felt that in the in terms of tenor, anywhere from 12 to 24 months with an average of 18 months is what was meaningful for them. So we kept that also as 18 months. Now, when we did the repayment also from the payment system, that has suddenly, one, obviously helped with the post-disbursal risk management. But... These three things also made sure that we got the right set of merchants that we wanted to work with. Then we started like this the product itself, we started scaling this. We got to some amount of volume, not enough. And then we started going out from the market to raise funds around that. Luckily, over the course of next one, one and a half years, we got three investors to back us. When is this? When did you go out to raise more funds? So we started... <laughs> I think we've been raising funds forever, but exclusively we started going out in 2018 when we completely pivoted from just being a payments platform to say now we're a lending first company. And at the start of 2018, when we became a lending first company, that's when we said that now we will go out in the market. So it took us about one and a half years at the time as well to show that when we're serious about it, we can do it well. And we have track record to show that we can do it well. So May 2019 is when we got the funds from FMO, Axion and IV Cap Ventures, which is a crazy at the time. This was about $7 million. Yes, this was $7 million. Hmm. Okay, okay. Like going back a little bit, what was your way to do underwriting? And you had, I mean, you did not have that in-house capability. How did you build that up? And were you doing collections through deductions from transactions right from the beginning or did that evolve? So we, the transaction deduction we were doing from the beginning in terms of collection, that we said is a very straightforward model for us. That will not take time because we already had a payment system in build. We built a collection team on top of that, right? That started with one person and now today, like it's a much larger team. But yes, at that but time. Why do you need a collection team? Because you don't need to call and tell people to pay, right? It just happens automatically. Uh, what happens is you always have these merchants uh, who either need a physical visit after a point or require like a little bit of nudge because see I'll a lot of these merchants right they have good intent to pay they probably not get it but there is always this 5% in the market that probably require that nudge and push so you you're working for those 5% not the 95% no but nudge to do what because you are there's no manual input needed from the budget right every time he gets paid you take a cut Yes, but what if they stopped using the payment system itself? Uh, Okay, okay, okay. So in that case, you would ask them to do a back transfer if the... They could do. We typically have NATCH and checks for these guys as well as a safety measure. We could put in the NATCH as well. But you still require a team member in collections to say that, okay, what if the NATCH doesn't work? Right. Then you have to physically visit because in, in some of these cases, because we have daily payments, we've also seen stories where Typically, what would happen is, imagine your due date is 1st of November. So, if your EMI fails on that day, then somebody would visit you only a week or 10 days later saying that, okay, why have you not paid? In our case, what happens is if the dispersal has happened on 1st of October, 
first first october itself we'll start having like deductions if the deductions don't and then we'll have call then physical visits as well so imagine if somebody has not made a payments for straight, seven straight days so third day call will go fifth day we'll put nudge seventh day a physical visit will happen so by 7th october we are actually at the door right so in this case we were actually at somebody's door on 7th october in hyderabad to see that they were winding their shop and we figured that they were winding their shop and basically they were trying to gather money through multiple loans and revenue away at least we were the first ones on the door so we were able to get a principal back right for any bank or nbfc which had lent and they went on 1st of november right they got nothing out of it because what we seen is all like no merchant or no business goes down in one day they take some time to wrap up to go you start seeing from the stock in the shop itself that yes it's not deteriorating etc so with this frequency of transaction you're able to make out a lot more than a typical emi product okay so the way repayment happens is ideally through transactions there is a daily deduction and that daily deduction is automatically adjusted so that it meets the emi for that month like for example if by the 20th enough deductions have happened to meet the emi then 28th to 30th there'll be no more deductions you know so what we do is we i'll give you an example here imagine there's a 1 lakh rupee loan that is taken and the person has to pay 1 lakh 20000 in the year including the interest rate now the approximate emi for edi equated daily installment comes to roughly about 368 in this case so now what we will do is that in case if this number a customer has made a transaction of 1000 rupees we'll deduct the 368 rupees and transfer the remaining amount to the bank account but we'll not take an extra amount from that day just because we have that we'll say we'll cut only this much but yes in case if they're not done transactions or if they've only been 100 doing 100 trans- 100 rupee transaction for 3 days right then we'll say that okay dpd is one now because your 300 rupees is pending so let's try and make a okay what is dpd dpd is days past due okay days past days past due that how many days are you past the last due yeah okay 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 and okay so it's basically on a daily basis and you would not tolerate more than 7 days of non payment if for 7 days continuously you've not been getting that daily installment then you would escalate so and we, try and Call them after the third day. Hmm. But like, when would so you like use the nudge or the check? So third day is when the first call goes. We do consecutive calls on the third and fourth day. In case they on the fifth day also they're not responding, then we do the nudge and check that day. Nudge or check whichever one, and we get the result of the nudge or check the next day. On the seventh day, if the nudge or check has failed, then we actually go physically visit them on DPD seven also. Okay. Okay. what if is just because let's say he's gone to his village because it's a festival season and fine so as long as we've got a positive feedback saying that okay the merchant has just gone home or is just facing some health crisis etc then we're understanding and then we'll say okay we'll come back a week later or whenever the merchant is back and we'll take the dues then so just to understand whether the intent is there or not the merchant is kept or not or if the business is going down or not got it okay and what is your arrangement with nbfcs the are you like cold ending where some of the loan is from your books and some is from their books or are they lending to you and then you're lending it further ahead or like how is that structured help me understand that sure our nbfc just license has just recently come in fact it came in only april and we started using the license only since september so it's only been a couple of months since lending on our books we raised some capital on their nbfc as well as a debt 
So there is some amount of loans that we're directly doing from our NBFC, but that is tough, right? But we've had five years of history before that as well. Where what we do is we work with partners on this model where we give them some security saying that, okay, we'll take care of these loans. And typically they'd be okay to then say that, okay, we co-decide on a policy and between that policy, the cases and files should come. And then on those, the acquisition of those merchants, the credit assessment of those merchants and collections on those merchants is done by us. The person is done by the partner. They do a credit analysis from their end as well to make sure that everything is kosher and like what we're saying is actually what we're doing. But apart from that, like uh, the process is being run by us. That allows us to have a lot better control of these merchants as well. We're able to make sure that they're a lot more secure as well. And that's something uh, that has helped us scale as well a lot. So in fact, that is one reason why we've realized because of our post dispersal risk management, our NPAs in this space is actually one of the lowest in the industry. It's about 3.4, 3.5%, which is quite good for this segment. You are it. Okay. Essentially, you'd be giving them like an FLTG, a first loss default guarantee in exchange for uh, a better take rate. Yes, I wouldn't call that anymore because I think there are some norms around it in, in the recent times. But I think there is some amount of comfort that is given to any of these partners as well that eventually gets there. But yes, earlier we used to give FLTGs. Hmm. Okay, okay. And what would be your take rate? 28 to 32% is what you were charging the customer. Yeah. So, so what was your... So we earn about 8 to 9% on every loan, effectively. To say that like our acquisition cost would be somewhere about 4%. Even if I take a risk at a higher number of about 6%, which is the maximum. Like even during COVID, we only had a risk about 7.5%. So in extreme scenarios also, like in a regular business-to-business scenario, we resume 6%. Apart from credit, ops, everything included, and the cost of credit, we earn about 8 to 9% on every loan. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So the NBFC partner would be charging about 10% and another 10% would be your cost of... The cost of capital these days is anywhere from 13 to 15%. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So that is a broad benchmark here. Yeah. I, we've typically not started working with banks yet because I think mm-hmm. banks are still not completely catering to the segment as much. You said your customer acquisition cost is 4%. Why do you have that cost? Or what is that? That cost is the cost of the burn you incur on the payment. Because payment is a loss leader, right? No, so that has changed now. So, in fact, like I was coming up to it. So, what has changed now, right, is that when we were, we pivoted to a lending first model, now we said that our customers only who want to loan. We will not give our payments product just to anybody. We will not just get paid customers. If you want to loan, you work with us. And when we give you a loan, we give you a product also. Right? Now, what happened was the cost of acquisition for payments became zero. And in fact, when you're giving a loan, nobody haggles on the pricing also for, for a payment anymore. So now when we say payments, we're happy to take one point. Well, so in fact, payment has become a profit center for us now. Okay. 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 Got it. And like this, this switch was one of the most important things. And that's why having what the merchants want and listening to them was one of the most important parts for us. Okay. okay. But FPI would still be like zero earning, right? UPI doesn't yeah. have any MPR, but which is debit card. Like, at a blended level, it's still positive. Amazing. Okay. Okay. Essentially, now you're a lending business at the core. Yeah. And the payment is just something which helps you be more effective at lending, like in terms of high velocity collections and 
early warning signal. It, it gives you more data to give you a better portfolio, keep your NPS down. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think as business, we realize it's also a collections business. It's not like a, it's not just a credit assessment business. It's not only like a distribution business because distribution, in my opinion, is not even a problem. There are enough customers out there who want loans. It's actually a problem of how do you collect the money back from these guys? So if you're able to divide strategies around that, that solves your problem. How do you do underwriting at the time of giving the loan? Is it based on the credit bureau score? So the bureau is one part of it. But apart from that, there's a host of data points that we look at as well. From their banking to their transaction data, a little bit of mobile data that is permissible as well. All that combined goes into an algorithm that throws up a number as to how much loan the merchant is eligible for how long. And then there is a manual overlay also on top of that. So we don't only do entirely digital. We do manual because we feel that the ticket size is large enough that it requires some physical intervention. And that also helps make sure that like the merchant is not cooked up. Like in India, you'll find all sorts of jugaads to figure out. Like people are made like a business out of it. So we want to make sure that we're able to catch these guys. So we, for example, we have an FC, which is a third party check also that is done. F- FC, what is FC? U.S. Fraud Control Unit of Fraud Control. Okay. Yeah. So, which which is a third-party check, which enables people go and check whether the customer actually exists or not, their shop is real or not, their house is real or not, etc. Can you help me understand what is the like for someone who doesn't know what is credit underwriting? How do you do credit underwriting? The simplistic way is to say, okay, if the score credit bureau score is more than six fifty, then we will give a loan. But you're not doing that. doing a lot of other analysis to form the decision. What is uh, what is the way to think about how to do credit analytics? What are some of those insights over there? I think that's a great question to say that what are the ways to think about it to say that, okay, what is, how do you decide that number? Because you'll give a loan above a certain number. That is fine. But I think the art is to figure out how much amount for how long. The art lies in the fact that you can't have the person Give, being given more money than they're actually able to earn to be able to repay their loans. So if their income, just give, making a, a number here, but gives them 50,000, that's uh, say profit per year, per month. Now you can't give a loan that in 18 month period with a 20,000 rupee EMI also, they're not able to pay back. Because if you give them an EMI, which is 1 lakh rupees, 12 lakh rupee loan, they'll never be able to pay that back. So that is is a number that you have to figure out. Obviously, you have to then be able to check whether their business volumes have been increasing over a period of time or not. What is the vintage of the business? Apart from that, you end up checking like how long have they been around in the house, the area, etc. as well. What the business line are they in right now? Is that at risk any at any given moment right now? For example, post-COVID, restaurants were a big risk as a business. Right? So, at that moment, we were not doing restaurants. But now, again, so now we can do it. So, I think those signals also we have to check. And keep evaluating that on an ongoing basis. You'll also realize that in certain cities, there are certain areas that are high risk compared to some other areas. Or there could be certain patterns that you start to observe between people itself that the kind of fraud they're doing. So how do you catch those frauds? At what point do you start thinking somebody might be going to a dead trap? Like one insight I can tell you that we realized from a data science team that if you've given somebody three top-ups, right? So first, second loan and the third loan on top of that. After the third top-up, which is all the 18 months each, right? The risk on the merchant in the fourth top-up actually increases substantially, which is counter. You would have thought that if somebody has taken 
three consecutive loans from you, paid them back, right? They were actually able to do it. But what happens is everyone thinks that and then they start over-leveraging the merchant also. They start giving them the more amount than they actually need. And when merchants are indebted more than they can pay back, they only pay, keep paying you interest, but they can't pay you the principal back. And that's when some of these go down as well. So you have to then add those points check whether the merchant is over-leveraged, whether they're in falling in a dead trap or not. Okay, okay. How do you calculate earning potential? That seems like the key to decide, right? Like how much money to give for duration, what duration, it depends on their earning potential. Or so their earning, earning trend. So each industry has a certain benchmark margins that are there. We are able to then assess like from the revenues that they're earning as well, like what is that earning potential that is coming in. So that is one indicator into the entire business. Obviously, you'll also include that fact that if you say if there's a grocery shop, right, their sales are maybe say about 5 lakh rupees a month and 50,000 is their margin because it's a 10% margin business. For example. Now, if you give them 2 additional lakh, right, then they will be able to make on those 2 lakh, maybe 10% additional every month because they're you're adding to working capital as well. So with that, like how are they able to pay you back the money? So then you can add those things as well. Okay. 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 Got it. Okay. Yeah. That, now, so we crossed demonetization. We crossed your first fundraise of $7 million. So we are pretty much at where the pandemic would have hit. Tell me that part yeah. of the journey. So I think when the pandemic hit, thankfully we were, we just raised funds a year before that, nine months before. We were growing exceptionally at the time, actually. We had grown 9x in that period, in those nine months. And we were actually on the top of the world. And that suddenly put brakes on our growth at that moment. Because one, lending obviously became a risky business that time because if you give out loans, but you don't know how the pandemic is going to last, how long, what business is going to be impacted the most, how long the lockdown is going to last, which cities the lockdown is going to be lasting. Because we were also a lot more focused on Bombay at the time. And Bombay also had the longest run that happened. So Bombay opened 4th of November 2020 compared to some other cities that opened in May or June itself. So I think those existed. So we had that as an impact. So for a couple of months, our lending almost came down to literally zero. There was some amounts we had done, but not so much. And then from June 2020, we started dispersing again. We went into new cities, then we started dispersing there. And then we started picking up. So we had to almost start from ground zero and then pick it up to the numbers we are at today. Since then, I think even in wave two of lockdown, we didn't stop because wave two also happened in different cities at different times. So obviously we were able to manage that. And we had also learned a lot from wave one. So we were able to make sure that like, our business doesn't get impacted. So we have contingencies in place at the time. We had one of the decisions, I think at the hardest at the time that we came across during COVID was a lot of companies were cutting salaries and that was a no. you either letting go of people or cutting salaries. We were, we felt very strongly that one, our employees have done nothing wrong. They don't need, deserve to cut their salaries because it's not that they would not referring to work. So at that time, actually, we never cut salaries. We never delayed salaries at the time. That was one important decision that we took. And second thing that we also continued at the time was that apart from the low-performing folks, which are continuing to be the, which is always the case, we never let any employees go as well. There was zero attrition, which was forced from our end at that time. And that, I think, has also stayed as an ethos with the company as well across employees that we want to treat people fairly. And I think that is something that we continue to maintain today. Okay, okay. 
So you said June 2020, you went into new cities. Does that mean you hired Feed on Street in those cities? Like that's your way to acquire merchants, right? Like through Feed on Street. Yep. Models in lending that we use to acquire merchants. One model is that use Feed on Street, which is like approximately 30% of our business now. 40% of our business comes from connectors. These are individuals who are like certain leads that they can pass it on successfully based model and they're able to get a commission on top of that. And the third model that we just started in the last one and a half years, but has scaled significantly, which has become 30% of our business now, is digital marketing, where it's not like Google and Facebook ads, but through digital channels, we're able to understand who are these merchants who probably require a loan. And then we have a telecalling setup who calls from like our office in Bombay or an office in Chennai to be able to acquire these merchants. There, we have seen significant growth because one, the monitoring of efficiency in some of these cities is a lot better than like a Peyton Street or Channel Partners. The efficiency is also better and also you know that quality of the merchants because you can focus on particular categories, you can focus on certain areas that have doing, been doing much better than others. Mm-hmm. Okay, 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 okay. How do you generate this data which is used for telecalling? I think a lot of we, we've really used a lot of tools that are there as Chrome extensions, etc. to be able to figure out like, say, pharmacy in Ghatkopar East. So then it'll give me like an entire dump of all the pharmacies in Ghatkopar East. But I know that pharmacies do really well in Bombay and that they have decent margins. So we are able to then call off all these pharmacies and be able to generate leads from there. Okay, okay, okay. So it's like narrowing down on industries which you know have good margins and then Finding so it's another so actually end up putting, but primarily it's based on saying that okay, we already have this data which we know works well. Why don't we work with that itself? And then it also went to cities where we have maybe limited presence. Like you can see your existing cohort of borrowers right. and draw some trends on it that these kind of right. customers are coming to us for loans. So let's target more such customers. Right. For example, in COVID, right, it was way easier to call all the grocery shops and pharmacies because those were the businesses that are booming. Okay, okay. So what is the adoption? What kind of adoption do you see of the payment product by a merchant who takes a loan? Do they genuinely switch to it or do they continue to take payments through the existing methods which they have? I would say that 40-50% of them continue to work with us. There are others who have multiple POS machines or payment products, which we not deny. I think they can continue to work with their product, their current payment systems as well, as long as they're able to make daily transaction enough amount that pays our EMI or EDI. That is a qualifier for us. That well, we don't deny that fact that yes, they might be somebody who is getting way lower interest rate or MDR from a bank because bank is able to give a subvention on their MDR also because of other products that they service them or current account exists with them. So all that we are okay with. There are certain businesses where also they might not be a daily transaction also. So there we are okay to just give a, Q, a QR code and not a POS machine. For example, there could be a mattress shop. They might not daily transaction. They don't, it's not a high frequency business. So over there we can give a code and maybe not a, a POS machine. Like you give POS machines through banks and no, we have a POS machine. Okay. Okay. When did you launch that? This was again around 2018. Okay. Okay. Because you needed to have that 
strong control on payment inflows to collect. So it makes Correct. sense to give a Cosmos. Yeah. And so for this, you charge them like, like the rental, which typically most. So we have a fixed cost. We charge them one time, which is a cost of product for us and plus a little bit of margin there. But there is no monthly rental there because we realized from our first experience that monthly rental is where it's one hardest, hardest to collect. And then merchants end up throwing the POS machine a lot faster. But if you haven't like for 18 months of a loan and you know now it's free for you, then you'll continue to use it even if you're not taking a top up. But next time when you need to top up, right, you'll, we'll be the first people you'll contact us as well. Okay. Your POS machine is your physical inroad into the merchant's shop. Okay. Yeah. Because now the merchant already has a physical pass, which is free because they've already paid money for it. And how much does the machine cost for a merchant? Roughly about 7,000 rupees all inclusive, which is a one-time cost. Okay. Okay. And this is like the touchscreen kind of machine, which, or is it like the old it school? A, it has a digit system. So touchscreen is like Android based, which is far more expensive. So that would cost anywhere between 12 to 13,000 rupees. But we realized in our segment of merchants, that is not a high demand product. They, were, they wanted to be cost effective and we're okay with that. Okay. 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 Got it. You said banks give you a subvention on MDR. What does that mean? Can you break that down? What that means is typically if I'm a MSME, right? And I have a current account with the bank. Now bank is earning interest on that by giving loans for that, but they're not giving me any interest, right? If I have 10 lakh rupees in the bank account, bank will be earning on that interest, but they're not giving me anything. So I can tell the bank that I'll remove my 10 lakh rupees from your account if you don't give me free services. So then what happens is they can give you a POS machine which does not have any MDR, maybe that doesn't have a monthly rental, things like that. Or it has a reduced MDR. Instead of 1.8%, they could charge 1.5 as well. Okay. Okay, okay. And how does this tie into your merchants, this MDR? I'm just saying not with our merchants. It's just that merchants may have existing POS machines which are given by banks which have rates because they have subvention for the bank. So my rate will still be 1.8. But if a bank has given them a machine at 1.5, most likely the merchant will try to use that. Okay, okay, okay. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. And what percentage of your merchants take physical POS versus what percentage take a QR code solution? I think about 50-60% merchants take the POS and about the remaining 40-45% end up taking the QR only as a Okay. That QR would be like, say, the Bharat Pay QR where you scan with yeah, your so UPI app. Yeah, UPI QR. Yeah, it is a UPI QR itself, which accepts, which is accepted across all payment options. Hmm. So it's a ubiquitous QR. It's just that instead of we are able to then deduct like the loan repayment from there and then transfer the money to the bank. So you're primarily competing with Bharat Pay because they also do the same thing, like targeting merchants, giving them loans and so using payment as a method. I think there are two substantial differences there. One, I think Bharat Pay, one, obviously, being a payments first company, right? They acquire millions of merchants for payments. And then they figure out based on that, that which are these merchants which are lendable. So usually what ends up happening is they might be slightly lower domain of merchants than one, the ones that we give. So that's why their ticket sizes could be sub 30, 40,000 rupees, typically, maybe an average of 25,000. In our case, the average ticket size, like I said, is between 1 to 10 lakhs and average is 5.5 lakhs. So it's not always Apple to Apple in terms of merchants. They might do a street vendor as well. We don't, we probably won't work with the street vendor because we don't know the whereabouts on a given day. Okay. Okay. Got it. 
then that is the primary difference. Like they would be lending to, let's say, five, 10 percent of their merchant base and the ticket size would be much lower. I think this approach or strategy makes a substantial difference because to acquire that million merchants, you'll have to spend a lot of money as well. And I don't know if you get enough substantial data that I cannot gather today or I cannot check. Because if there are the UPI QR transactions that have happened, I can also see that in their bank accounts. And especially with the account aggregator framework coming in. Yes, correct. So it's not advantage in a way because the data is anyway transparent. If I use a bank, I'll be able to analyze that anyhow. Okay, so data is not really, the payment data is not such a big advantage. And acquisition cost continues to be the same for both of you. Yeah. You are uh, spending only on merchants you're lending to. They are spending on a lot more merchants and yeah. converting some of them through a cross-sell. But the cost of acquisition per merchant would be roughly similar. Right. I would much higher for them if I had to guess maybe. Because when you acquire a million merchants, a large portion, and we had done this as an, I can tell you from our personal experience, when we looked at the 50,000, 60,000 merchants we had in our platform, right? Very few were actually lendable, firstly, because say a travel agent is maybe not be lendable because they are a services business. They don't have physical asset to you. Second is that when you want to give them a loan, whether they actually want a loan or not, you don't know. So either ways, like there is a conflict. So then the challenge is out of that 50,000 in every given month, if you were able to give a loan only to 50 or 60 or maybe 100, that's too low a number. Okay, interesting. So you're like the uh, the anti-Bharat pay in the budget lending space. <laughs> so I think there, there are three types of players that are actually, you would have heard a lot of noise in this segment. And I think what I've seen is that there is a lot more noise than actual change on the ground. So there are three types of that we're talking about. This The one is people who are playing on surrogate data. So anybody in those sites, they're saying that, okay, we have this other data of these merchants. We want to play on this data to be able to lend these merchants. Correct? Like, obviously, there are payments companies that are working on this as well, which want to lend as well. And the third is pure play lending companies. Now, when I talk about pure play lending companies, one of the important factors to remember is that lending globally and historically has never been a winner-take-all market. So unlike Amazon, it will not become the ubiquitous tool. We have e-commerce issues. Like in the lending, it doesn't exist. The second is, so these players will continue to exist. They, in fact, will continue to cooperate with each other to lend as well. We have a lot of partners who are competitors also in a way. But that came in the segment. Because nobody can fill all demands. I might work in the West and South. Somebody might just work in the North as well. Now, when we come to payment and data companies, right? Now, data surrogate data companies, they've had this issue that one, their data, irrespective, is reflected somewhere or the other in the bank statements. If you're applying, if you're selling, if you're transferring money, it's visible in bank statements somehow that I can identify. And what happens is there is no, that data can also be fabricated to get a loan. And it's not meaningful enough a lot of times because if you're a distributor, for example, of goods, right? You might be one-tenth of the distributor. There could be other nine distributors as well. When I'm assessing a merchant, I might be able to assess it on all 10 distributors and then give them a meaningful loan versus giving it the only tenth of the loan. So that's why you would see players like Khatap have moved into a SaaS model and things like that. Didn't end up going into a lending model only. There is also the other side where payment companies have this thing that they, when they acquire a lot of merchants, there's an upfront cost to that. To bear that upfront cost, 
then you have a legacy issue that now I acquired these merchants now I to need to give loans also because I need to ensure that I'm able to justify that cost. That then you are not always the most credit conscious. Sometimes to break the barrier there as well. We have seen that since the time we started, there are several companies that have not given enough due importance to credit, right? That have also let go from this entire business itself. They have not, they don't exist anymore. So, like an example of Capital Float used to do business in the space, MSME lending earlier. It's now a BNPL player. I think there are a few others as well, which are which have gone through that cycle now. So, I think. Where if you're not credit conscious, then there is a very high risk of being an issue. Okay. What about BNPL companies which are targeting merchants, like say Rupify, ePay Later, which are targeting that same category of merchants which you are targeting? Which category do they come in? They would be lending a merchant. Typically, they're just saying that, okay, we'll help your customers like a play at paying you later. So we'll increase your revenue there. So they're not okay. taking a punt to the merchant, but the customers are coming to these merchants. Okay. No, say Rupify works with Uran and with Zomato's uh, yeah. restaurant procurement business. Like yeah. Zomato has one vertical which right. helps restaurants yeah. to procure. Yeah. And they give yeah. loans to restaurants or loans to right. merchants buying from Uran. But again, it's only a segment, right? So now if you buy from Uran, you might be one of the distributors of Uran. So you maybe have one tenth, one twentieth, one fifth of the business. But you need, if you want to have the overall view of the business to be able to give a meaningful loan, that is where it becomes a difference. Otherwise, you could be in an invoice discounting supply chain finance kind of a loan. Well, you're giving it a 30, 40,000 loan. But I wouldn't directly call it a competition to what we're talking about. Because we are trying to give a loan which can help them from their business for a, to a bigger scale. Rather than it's an intermediate working capital loan problem. Your loan is like a no strings attached loan. Right? Right. They can use it for building another, right. say building another outlet or they can use it for inventory or whatever they want to use right. it for. So we have seen some of the retail shops actually transform from like the typical mom and pop store which have all these packets lying around to the modern retail store format as well. And suddenly they would have seen a big shot in the increase in the business, 50-60% in because now when they're able to, customers are able to move around, right? They actually end up buying more. So those sort of changes can only happen when you're giving them a ticket set that is meaningful. Okay, okay. Oh, what's on the roadmap now? So I think as we grow, we have a couple of things that we're adding on as well. So we already added insurance recently. So we're scaling that now. Insurance, what kind of insurance? Correct. So there are three products that we are currently in works with. So one is Credit Life, where you have a life insurance along with your credit product itself. So there are two types of life insurance. One is obviously that your loan will be repaid in case if there's an emergency. But second is that you'll get a, your family will get a life insurance in case if there's an emergency as well, which is a typical government insurance. The second is theft, fire, any accidents, etc. In the shop itself, there is an insurance for that. Third one is health. I think we've realized that post-COVID, merchants have also become equally conscious of the health and the impact it has on their business as well. So these three segments in insurance is something that we're playing with. We might add more later, but for now, this is the one that we're working on. How are you making health insurance accessible? Most people get health insurance through corporate employment where it becomes affordable for them. Are you doing some stuff to make it affordable for people who are not getting insurance through employment? At the first step, we will work with either brokerage firms or insurance companies to be able to provide this insurance itself. The only thing is it will not become affordable, I would say, but it will become more accessible. 
So the roadblocks that are there in the process, because now this is a portfolio of merchants in a certain age segment, certain working conditions, certain in a city. So insurance companies are also willing to take that as a portfolio and say that, okay, we can remove some of these preconditions of tests, etc. And then give them an insurance product. If somebody individually goes, they're like, okay, first you have to take these five tests. And then you have to come back and then you have to give these conditions, these many questionnaires to be able to give. I think that process is what we are streamlining right now. Okay, okay, okay. Onboarding is becoming easier. If as an individual buying health insurance, you need to undergo some amount of qualifying tests and so on, which uh, as a group, you don't need to because companies assume that in this group, there'll be some healthy, some unhealthy. So you are able to present this as a group to companies to get them to eliminate the pre-qualifying diagnostic tests. Absolutely. Uh, okay, interesting. Okay, what else on the roadmap besides insurance? I think for now, this is what we're looking at. We have a couple of products that we're looking at, but that probably will be once at least one or one and a half years down the line, not right now. But, but they will be, just to understand what you think. So one it could be more like a current account type product where merchants who have excess capital can pop their money in that account. And, so then, and if you earn them just. Yes, then they'll earn them interest than the, what the, more than what they're getting in a bank today. And will this be through like a peer-to-peer lending model? Like that could be an interesting play here. No? Like merchants it who have extra money can lend to merchants who need money. It could be through a P2P model. It could be in conjunction working with a bank also. So okay. even bank wouldn't mind working on something like this. Because if you're able to give them a pool of money and guarantee that around approximately around this money will always be there. And they don't mind that. Okay, okay. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So essentially, you're moving towards being a new bank for merchants. Yes, it's correct. So new banking is the case. I think what we've always kept is like, how do we help merchants as a vision? And we haven't married ourselves to the idea that we started out with. But like, mm-hmm. how do we in- ensure that we're able to help them the most? What about stuff like, say, helping them manage payroll and payouts and stuff like that? At least in our analysis so far, that has not come out as a need. Because most merchants that we work with have only maybe one, two people working with them. So it's not like as much of a need yet for us to help them with. So that's why we've not put that on our roadmap yet. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Is your itch for impact satisfied at FT Cash? I think it is. Actually, like financial inclusion in this space has been immense. Actually, the amount of changes that you're able to see, right? On merchants, I, I'll give you one example. One change that we've seen is back in 2019, we had gone with one of our investors on a due diligence to one of the merchants in Bombay itself, who was a small repair shop, right? It was in a very dingy corner, like nothing fancy about it, very run of the mill. But the merchant had been a payment merchant and also just taken the first loan from us. At that point, since the time, we've given them the merchant three loans. And we've also seen the merchant over the period now having a proper established, having bought an apartment, now drives a car. And I think that journey of the merchant that we're able to see over the four or five year period, right? If I don't call that financial inclusion, what would be? 40% of our, 40% of our merchants are new to credit. 44% of our merchants are women. So that also gets players into play, don't have access to capital before. Amazing. What is your monthly disbursement rate now? How much do you currently? We're dis- currently, we're disbursing about 30 crores a month. And what's your book? About 300 crores right now, give or take. And how much from your own NBFC? Our own NBFC just started. So, roughly about 15 to 20 crores would be the number from our NBFC. So, 
what is your plan? What percentage do you want on your own NBFC? Our own NBFC will continue to be like as much as equity we can do and like the, the amount of money that will be there on NBFC, right? We'll continue to keep that. So that will always remain 20% of our overall book, but we'll work, continue to work with partners to be able to load further. But why not scale that up? Because you can take debt on the books of the NBFC instead of co-lending. Because you anyway own the whole stack from acquisition to collection. Then why not just do it on I your can books? leverage my book at maybe 4 5x of equity. Wherein the same equity with a partner, I can leverage up to 20x. Okay. So you'll need to raise a lot of money if you want more on your yes. own books. Then yeah, why not yeah. do that? Like why not raise more money? I think we get the same upside either ways. Okay. Like when we're raising capital also from outside in our NBS, it'll be at the same cost. If you're working with a partner, also it'll be at the same cost. Okay. 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 So here it's just, it's just for vanity that you would raise money. It's not going to impact your unit economics. Yeah. And then we'll end up digesting also. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. First time I've heard this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is the value of a budget you acquired? How much, like, what is the repeat rate and? How much money do they take as low as total or give me some of those numbers? I think that is a number that I might not have today because we have not been able to evaluate that enough because a lot of our merchants we work, they might, once they take a loan, maybe they're not eligible the second time as well. So we don't, let's say, look, look at as from a lifetime acquisition of a merchant itself because get them a loan the second time also, we have to do a complete evaluation. Okay. But a business moment. Currently, what is your number of people who've taken a second loan? This would be uh, about 50% of our existing merchants do take a loan second time. 30%. 30%. Okay. 15. 50%. So you've raised close to $15 million so far. Yes. Uh, total. Yes. And uh, what are your lessons on fundraise? So we've always had interesting journeys in fundraise. So when we just started out, I think this was right around 2015-16 when the frenzy of fundraise in 2014-15 was just ending. So at that time also, like raising money was a bit of a challenge because there was almost a funding winter at the time as well. Easy money was gone and we were heading into a business where we had to show profitability, part to profitability, mm-hmm. unit economics to be able to raise money. So I think it's not that we got an easy money at the time as well. But whatever little we did, we tried to work with that for the longest time. In fact, before our series of fundraise, I think we got into a point where we'd almost run out of money. And we had no money to pay salaries or vendors, etc. And it just so happened that we'd gone to MIT in uh, 2019, November 2018. And we won an award uh, by them for the most innovative fintech in the world. And they gave us $250,000. That at the time to survive for the next three months, we actually got them. But if it, we still don't know what we would have done without that. So those have been the times, there have been times like obviously we suddenly have to calibrate ourselves in terms of making sure that we stem our growth a little bit just in case like to make sure that our runway is elongated. So I think that is an ongoing journey that every founder has to go through. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium dot in. That's ad at t h e p o d i u m dot in.